James chapter 1, verse 22, this very first verse, uh, you could say in a sense, kind of sums up a major portion of the epistle where James writes, Be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. There's something to be said for that, isn't there? That if you are a hearer of the word, but not a doer of the word, that you deceive yourself. There is the potential there for self-deception. You know, if the word is heard, but not put into practice. Continuing verse 23. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect to persons. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and you have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool, are ye not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren. Hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he hath promised to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by the which ye are called? If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. For he shall have judgment without mercy that has showed no mercy, and mercy rejoiceth against judgment. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 13. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. I want to call your attention in particular to a phrase that occurs twice in this portion we just read. Look at verse 25 and notice the phrase, 
But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, the perfect law of liberty, and then jump down to chapter 2 and verse 12. So speak ye and so do as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. What an interesting phrase. I don't know that it's found in any other place besides James' epistle here. And as I say, anyone who is the least familiar with this epistle of James will know that when you're dealing with this letter, you're dealing with a very sharp sword. And the reason for that sharpness may be understood by a quote from John Wesley, who once said, the problem of problems is to get Christianity put into practice. You hear that again, John Wesley? The problem of problems is to get Christianity put into practice. Now, I know John Wesley is an unusual character. He was certainly used mightily during the Great Awakening, and yet the man seems to have vacillated at different times in his doctrinal stances, including, of all things, the doctrine of justification by faith. I used to wonder about that the first time I had heard that Wesley denied that doctrine. The thought that struck me was, can that be? John Wesley? I mean, granted the man wasn't a Calvinist. Granted he had some uh, contentious moments with George Whitfield over doctrinal issues. But did he go so far as to deny justification? Ian Murray has written an interesting biography on John Wesley in which he points out that Wesley kind of vacillated. He went back and forth. Yeah, I see it. It's what the Bible teaches. Um, no, I'm not so convinced. But the reason for his lack of commitment, if you will, or lack of being convinced wasn't because he couldn't see the truth of it in Scripture, but he couldn't see the truth of it in the lives of Christians. That's what bothered him. Led him to question it back and forth along the way. In a similar vein, Charles Erdman wrote, its fundamental note is the demand for reality in religion, talking about the epistle of James. It rebukes all pretense and self-deception, all sham and hypocrisy. It insists that faith shall be tested by works, that character shall correspond to profession. Okay, bridging the gap, as I said a moment ago. Because of this demand for reality and religion and a lack of sympathy where that reality is not found, this epistle written by James has been called into question by some men of eminence as to whether or not it even belonged in the canon of Scripture. No less a spiritual giant than Martin Luther remarked that this epistle has no gospel character in it. That was Luther in his earlier days. By the time he was done, he had a change of mind. And certainly we can see that James is more practical than doctrinal. 
We don't find in this epistle the same kind of theological argumentation that we find in Paul's letter to the Romans. It would be wrong, however, to view this epistle as being incompatible with Paul. The focus in the epistle of James is on the practical effects of the gospel in the life of the believer. Here's what it should do to you, okay? Paul's thesis in Romans is that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, chapter 1, verse 16. I'm reminded also of Paul's statement in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17, which tells us that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, old things are passed away, Behold, all things are become new. You might argue that James provides us with an inspired commentary on those two verses. James, in other words, you could say, describes for us how all things become new. He elaborates for us the various areas in our lives that are impacted by the power of the gospel. The gospel, you see, affects how you view God. It affects how you view man. It affects your view of sin. It affects the way you view life. It affects the way you speak and how you act and how you deal with trials. It affects all of those areas. The gospel does. Because of this approach, I'm inclined to believe that this epistle is a much-needed epistle in our day when the power of the gospel is denied in so many practical ways, if not formal ways. In an old periodical I have on this epistle to James, I read these words. We live in the midst of contradiction and inconsistency. It seems as if everyone claims to be a Christian, even notorious false teachers and anti-Christian cults. One of the grievous flaws of the new evangelicals is that they take everyone's claim to be a Christian far too seriously. James is a wholesome corrective from this gullibility. He is not the least bit impressed by someone's claim to be a Christian, James wants to know whether the Christian can live what he professes to believe. All believers need the consistency of a genuine internal faith that is manifested outwardly by the habits and practices of daily life. What you believe must show itself in how you live. So we see a very clear purpose then behind this epistle. I actually preached through this epistle uh, many years ago. So many years, in fact, that I can't even find the notes that I printed out. I think they were printed out on a dot matrix printer. That's how far back uh, the time goes when we studied this epistle. But I do remember that when we studied this epistle, I suggested that a key phrase to it can be found in verse 27 of chapter 1, where James says, Pure religion and undefiled is this. 
And then he goes on to describe it. It's to visit widows in their affliction and keep yourself unspotted from the world, which means by way of principle that pure religion and undefiled uh, amounts to this, uh, compassion and separation. Compassion for others, separation from the world. What he says in essence is that pure religion should be consistent religion. You will find consistency between belief and practice. Now, I'm very much aware, you know, when I delve into an epistle like this and I uh, try to assign a theme to it of bridging the gap, I am very much aware that there's going to be a gap in every Christian. In a sense, that's true of us all. I know I've shared with you a time when I had the privilege of being in Ian Paisley's home. Uh, we had tea with the doc. And uh, after that, he led us in a short devotion. And then he had a time of prayer, and I've never forgotten his prayer. Lord, shorten the distance between our position and our practice, our standing in our state. There was a recognition. We have a perfect position. We have not yet measured up to it. There is a gap between our position and our practice. Lord, help us to shorten that gap. And I think this epistle to James is really meant to challenge us along those lines, to shorten the gap. This afternoon, I want to deal with this mistaken notion of Luther that there is no gospel character in this letter. While the epistle, as we've noted, is more practical perhaps than doctrinal, it is not right to say that it has no gospel character. In fact, as I recall, and again I'm having to bank on a memory uh, going way back, that I actually devoted a study over the course of uh, that series in the epistle of James in all the things that James and Paul actually have in common. That makes for an interesting study, and you discover they have a lot in common. Some things that seem to distinguish them, but never forget they have a lot in common, including gospel character. Now, we've read just now a passage that contains the phrase that occurs twice and is found nowhere else in the New Testament. It's a phrase you could say that describes the gospel in its essence, the perfect law of liberty. The law of liberty. What a sublime designation for the gospel. It brings to mind Christ's statement about his mission on earth that he makes in Luke chapter 4 and verse 18, where quoting from Isaiah 61, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. Oh, don't let it ever be said that there's no gospel character in the epistle of James. What has the gospel done for you? Well, it's healed your heart by bringing you to God through Christ. It's delivered you from the captivity of sin 
and the devil. It's brought to you spiritual sight to be able to see things aright, especially to see things by faith that are invisible to the eye of the flesh. And it's set you free, free from sin's condemnation and free from sin's dominion. Oh, James knew the gospel. He's captured its key benefit by this phrase, the law of liberty. So what I want to do in the moments that remain is just look at that phrase and think on the theme of living by the law of liberty. Living by the law of liberty. And in order to encourage you this afternoon to live by what Paul refers to as the glorious liberty of the children of God, I have just a few thoughts that will answer the question as to how. How we live by the law of liberty. We live by that law of liberty, first of all, first point, by realizing what it is. What are we talking about? Verse 25, whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty. Two concepts come to mind that are brought to our attention by that phrase. The concept of law and the concept of liberty. They almost seem contradictory, don't they, on the surface? Because a law prescribes certain boundaries. A law hedges you into something or keeps you out of something. A flaming sword which turned every way kept fallen man from the tree of life. That sword acted as a boundary, a law, if you will, to restrict man. Liberty, on the other hand, is what removes boundaries. Perhaps what I'm talking about can be illustrated by the Jewish temple at Jerusalem. No one was allowed to enter the inner chamber of that temple, no one that is but the high priest, and he could only enter into it once a year on the Day of Atonement. The law kept others out. The law prescribed restrictions to who could enter and when they could enter. But when Christ died, the veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom, signifying that this boundary, this barrier, if you will, had been removed. Today we come to the true temple of God, the heavenly temple, and we have open access to it at any time. The barrier has been removed by Christ's atoning death, and we are free to approach God's throne openly and even with boldness. Hebrews 4. The way I've just described these two concepts, however, seems to make them mutually exclusive of one another. I'm bound by a law, or I'm freed from the boundary. The phrase we're considering joins the two together. We're dealing with the law of liberty, so liberty itself becomes prescribed by a law. We have an example of this sort of thing in the Old Testament. In Leviticus chapter 25, we find the first mention of the word liberty. 
and it's being announced by means of a law. It was to be proclaimed throughout the land that every 50th year was a year of jubilee. Listen to how it reads in Leviticus chapter 25 and verse 10. And ye shall hallow the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. It shall be a jubilee unto you, and you shall return every man unto his possession, and ye shall return every man unto his family. This law of liberty restored to each Israelite his original inheritance. It also provided release to indentured slaves, and it provided release from debt. This may be the very thing that James had in mind when he used the phrase, the law of liberty. And the gospel applications are numerous. We, through the gospel of Christ, have gained back what was forfeited by the fall. We gain back righteousness, which is Christ's righteousness imputed to us. Man was created in righteousness. Man lost that righteousness. Man regains that righteousness in the gospel. We gain back fellowship with God himself. That had been forfeited in the fall of man. We gain back our forfeited lives. Our sin debt is released. This is glorious liberty indeed, and it is the law of liberty. Perhaps the best way to understand the meaning of the phrase is to realize that the one who has bound himself to an obligation or a law or a covenant is God himself. He obligates himself to set free those that believe in his Son, it is because liberty has become the law that Paul could write in Romans 8 and verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. It's no wonder that Christ could say in John 8 and verse 36, if the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. And here is freedom indeed when God binds himself by his word that we are free from sin's condemnation. It is this law of liberty then that governs our lives. This makes thanksgiving the motivating force in all that we do and say and think. We are bound by a law of love. It was the love of Christ that set us free from sin's condemnation. It was the love of Christ that paid the price for our sins. And so it becomes our love to Christ that motivates us to bridge the gap, if you will. We think differently. We speak differently. We view circumstances differently. We act differently because we're convinced that Christ has set us free from sin's penalty and sin's dominion. And the person who remains unaffected in his words and deeds and thoughts has not really believed the gospel. If you truly believe that your sin called for your damnation, and you truly believe that Christ took that damnation to himself so that you wouldn't have to bear it forever, then your life will be impacted. It will be affected. 
All that you do and say and think will be affected, not because you're trying to earn something from God, you could never do that, but because you've been set free by Christ. This is how the law of liberty functions. It's a law of love, you could say, based on gratitude. We've entered into the month of November. In many respects, this is my favorite month because it brings before us my favorite holiday, which is Thanksgiving. Oh, how blessed we are to have a day set apart to count our blessings and recognize how blessed we are before God and to give thanks to God for such bountiful blessings. So that's the first thing. If we're going to live by the law of liberty, we have to know what we're talking about. We have to know what it is. Would you consider with me next that we live by this law of liberty by looking into it continually. We look into it. Look again, chapter 1, verse 23. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man beholding his natural face in a glass, for he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. We've seen something of what the law of liberty is. We now have to think for a moment or two about how we put this law into operation. How is my life to be governed by the perfect law of liberty? How does it motivate me and you to follow after righteousness and true holiness? Well, there's something about this text that we need to see that I think is easily and repeatedly overlooked by many preachers who preach on this text. I've heard preachers refer to this passage in such a way as to suggest that we look at ourselves through God's word and we see our shortcomings and we make adjustments to our lives the same way a person does who looks in a mirror and sees what he has to do. In like manner, we look into the word of God and see ourselves and then see what we have to do. Now, I need to say here that in principle, I totally agree with that kind of action. But it's not what this text is saying. We're not looking at ourselves at all in this text. What we are looking into is this perfect law of liberty. Look again at what the text says. Whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty. It does not say, whoso looketh at himself through God's word. We're looking into the perfect law of liberty. And what that means, of course, is that we understand something about this law of liberty. We understand the grounds for our freedom. How is it that we can be free from sin's condemnation and from sin's dominion? Is it because God is willing to overlook our sin? Is it because God has lowered his standard? Is it because God has changed his law? I've actually heard that suggested when I was a young Christian. 
I've heard it taught that when God saw that man would not and could not keep his commandments, he decided to make the standard easier by saying, okay, you haven't kept these Ten Commandments. Instead, I'll require that you keep just this one. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And it is, of course, true that we must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. But we have gained liberty from the law, not because the law has been set aside, but rather because the law has been fulfilled. Christ lived for us. He was and is our covenant head. He fulfilled the law and he did so on our behalf as our federal representative, as our substitute, as our covenant head. But it wasn't enough for him simply to fulfill the law because we already acquired a debt to that law by having broken it, by having failed to measure up to it. So after Christ fulfilled the righteousness of the law that we failed to fulfill, he then paid our debt to the law that we could not pay apart from eternal damnation. The grounds of our freedom is found in Christ's atoning death by looking into this law of liberty and seeing in it the grounds of our freedom. We are doing nothing more really than looking to Christ himself. We see him to be the propitiation for our sins. We see his shed blood as the payment of the ransom to God for the broken law. So we draw our motivation for obedience by seeing the grounds of our salvation in Christ. We really are free on account of what he has accomplished. But look at the other mention of the law of liberty. This one in chapter 2 and verse 12. So speak ye and so do as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. How do we put the law of liberty into action according to that verse? I think the best way to illustrate it is to remember the time when the risen Christ was with his disciples by the sea. Peter, you will recall, had denied Christ in spite of his bold proclamation that he would be true even though all others may forsake Christ. Peter, in fact, denied Christ. He proved to be not so strong as he thought he was. He fulfilled Christ's word by denying him thrice before the cock crowed twice. Now perhaps with that very deed in mind, Christ says to him, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Oh, what a heart-searching question in that context and under those circumstances. Was Christ's aim to condemn Peter? Was Christ's aim to set him aside because of his sin? Not at all. But what a heart-searching and piercing question that now comes to Peter from Christ. Do you love me, Peter? I've died for you. I've shed my blood for you. I've redeemed you. I've reconciled you to God. I've shown you the greatest manifestation of my love. Peter, do you love me? Will you love me? 
even though you sinned against me and your sin nailed me to a cross. Oh, this is a form of judgment by the law of liberty. Peter's soul had been set free by Christ. He had gained a saving interest in Christ. But now that love and that liberty come to Peter's heart with convicting power. He had failed to love his Redeemer. I remember years ago when we lived in Illinois and I worked in the print shop there. The owner of the print shop was an Italian Catholic, Roman Catholic. And they're not the stereotype Italian Roman Catholics, but I must say, if there is a stereotype, this man met it in terms of having a very short fuse. Whenever something went wrong, whenever a mistake had been made, this man's tendency was to explode in a temper tantrum. Uh, it meant more to him to do that than try to offer constructive criticism and fix a mistake. Instead, he simply exploded. His son-in-law worked with him. In fact, he and I were in the same department. This man actually came to our little church plant for a time. And I remember one time his son-in-law making the remark to me, uh, I really don't mind it so much when he goes into a temper tantrum. He's much easier to ignore when he goes into that fit of rage. He said, it's, it's the heart-to-heart -heart talks that, that really get to me uh, because I can't uh, simply set those aside or ignore them. I think about that now when I think about Christ dealing with Peter in this instance and what do you have there but a heart-to-heart -heart with Christ and Peter. And so the law of liberty does work in us to set us back on the straight path. The love of Christ works positively to motivate us and negatively to draw us back in each instance, it is still the law of liberty. It is the motivating power of love working in our hearts. And what this means is that we must be constantly looking to Christ. We want the law of liberty to be the law that leads us forward. If we fail to look to Christ, if we're lured to look to the law of Sinai instead, or we're simply negligent in our communion with Christ, then the law of liberty ceases to function as the motivating law in our hearts. The lesson then is really very simple when it comes to the law of liberty functioning, we must look to Christ. We must see constantly from his head, his hands, and his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. And by doing so, we'll be on the path to living out our glorious liberty. His love will spur us on. His love will correct us. His love will move us to serve him. And the thing that will really strike us and convict us is the thought of breaking his heart after he's shown such love for us. Oh, may God grant then that we'll know the power of the gospel, the law of liberty working in our lives, leading us in a plain path, 
a path of righteousness and true holiness, leading us back to God each time we may go astray from him. Oh, may we indeed learn to live by this perfect law of liberty. Let's close then in prayer. Let's all pray. Oh, Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring this meeting to a close, we thank thee for this designation that is given to the gospel, this perfect law of liberty. We thank thee for our union to our Savior. We thank thee that nothing can separate us from his love, not our sins, not our failures, not our coming short. We thank thee, Lord, that Christ's love is steadfast and sure. May the truth of that be the governing factor in our lives. And may we indeed strive in the power thou dost provide to bridge the gap between our professions and our practices. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.